It was 8.30 on a May Day morning, and neither Alison Bechtel nor I were terribly awake. And while the two of us had talked two times before, nothing could prepare us for what you were about to hear. Okay, so I am here once again with Alison Bechtel, who is most recently the author of Are You My Mother? And it is obscenely early. Are you doing okay? I, I'm, I'm barely here. Are you here? I, I'm sort of here. Okay, okay. As well, I said, I have four hours of sleep under my belt, so we'll see what happens. And I had four hours of sleep, too. So, hey, I think we're, 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 we're BFF here. Um, I wanted to actually start off with Virginia Woolf, which is oh, a great good. place to, to start off with. Um, what's interesting to me about the diary entries that you choose in this book is that you don't actually include the fact that Virginia Woolf actually wrote about photography in her diaries. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure how much of, how familiar. I have not read all her diaries, okay. I have to confess, from the get-go. What did she say about photography? Well, here's the thing. You point out that Woolf was able to purge herself of her feelings towards her mother when she wrote uh, To the Lighthouse, almost in the manner of a psychotherapist. But, um, but what happened is, is that she was actually very uh, obsessed with photography throughout her life. And this is interesting because she had many. Um, she developed her own 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 pictures I as a did teenager. Not know that. She uh, she had many uh, female friends who were photographers. But here's the interesting thing. This is why I have to ask you about this. She loved taking pictures, but she hated having her picture being taken. And in fact, she wrote this piece for the New Statesman. I believe it was a letter where she basically complained about the paparazzi at the time of, uh, and so forth. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I, so. I do remember that. I remember she she posed like for the for a, a Vogue photograph that yes, she that's really right. regretted. <laughs> yes. Yes. The uh, so anyway, the the question I have in relation to this is well. Since we all know that you photograph yourself, I thought this sort of omission was rather interesting. I mean, uh, why do you think you didn't work this angle or pursue this angle of Virginia Woolf? If the- only I had known. I clearly did not do enough research. Oh. Oh, my God, Edward. I have to go back and rewrite the book. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, what, what was the extent I, of your my, my reading of Woolf was very selective. I did not read all the diaries. I did not even read all her novels. Wow. How much do you have to read of someone to, to really do sufficient research, or are you do you constantly have this yardstick of not doing enough? Well, I always feel like I'm not doing enough, but I'm not really a scholar. I don't not, don't have proper training, so I just follow my interests. And often, you know, I dug like a little wormhole through Wolf, just choosing the stuff that interested me. Yeah. Well, what was it specifically about Virginia Woolf that oh. interested you? Was there stuff that you pursued but you kind of tossed aside for this? Or? Well, I came across that uh, a book of her memoir writing, and I, it was that sentence about feeling as if she had exercised her mother by writing about her. That really riveted me. And so then I just started reading more and more. I read all the memoir stuff. I read the biography, and then I started rereading some of the books. Um, and that was how I got into it. But it was just that one sentence, which I know is pretty well known, but I wanted to be able to do that myself, yeah. to get my mother out of my head. Yes. How do you think, I mean, well, it's interesting though, get your mother out of your head. Why would you look to Virginia Woolf as the standard? I guess, did you just want to set the bar high here? <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't like trying to draw a comparison. I just thought her her process was compelling, um, and she speaks so lucidly about herself and the nature of the self that that just drew me in as well. Because I realized one of the things I wanted to write about was the self and yes. and the other and that interminable friction between them. But do you think that the memoir is the ideal form to find the true self? I mean, what I like about this book very much is the way that you set it up so that it's all this text that is competing with your life story, with your narrative, that uh, that it's almost as if you're, you're telling the reader and you're telling yourself by approaching your life from numerous angles, you're, you're inevitably going to get to that emotional truth. And I'm wondering how you developed that form. Did it come about through uh, revision? Did it come about through just uh, 
plunges into Wolf or Wincott? Um, well, for a long time in, in my work on this book, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing a lot of research. I was reading a lot of Donald Winnicott and a lot of psychoanalysis and reading a lot of my old journals. I, originally, I thought this book was going to be about relationships. I thought that was a... I, relationships are fascinating, and it's this perfect little crucible to examine the self and the other. Um, and I knew that my, my mother was a part of that jumble. But over the years, and it took me years to do this, I'm like extremely slow. I'm yeah. a slow reader. I'm a slow writer. I'm not very well read. I don't know what I'm even doing. You're not very From, well read? Come on. No, I, no, like I said, I read very selectively stuff that will help my own selfish projects. I'm, I'm not a generalist. I don't really know what's going on. I don't keep up with contemporary fiction. Just want to get that little disclaimer out of the way. Yeah, but you read quite a bit. I mean, is there any right way to read? I mean, why have a competing standard for what is a well-read reader? I mean, I, I have the same sort of feeling sometimes myself. Like but you, I, yeah. you read everything. No, I don't. There's a lot I have not read. Hmm. I haven't read Finnegan's Wake yet. I'm actually on page 20 <laughs> of Finnegan's Wake, so there you go. <laughs> Just the fact that you even mentioned that you haven't read Finnegan's Wake proves that you read too much. I read, can one read too much? No. Well, it depends. It depends. I think what you're are probably the conditionals here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if your life is going to wreck and ruin because you're sitting in a closet reading Finnegan's Wake. Well, my life isn't going to ruin. Good. Or well, there it? you go. Then you're fine. Do you feel that um, you have read too much because your life has gone to ruin? Or, or no, I, I feel like I have not read nearly enough. Yeah. And I don't know how people do it. Part, part of my excuse is that my job as a cartoonist is so insanely time-consuming. I don't have the time to read that I think most many people do. Because I have, like, a double shift. I have to write all day and draw all night. Yeah. It cuts in on the reading time. Yeah. But you depict yourself reading quite a bit in this. That's true. I don't know what I'm talking about. Sure, I think you do. Well, who knows what they're talking about? I, I... Tell you, I'm, I'm gonna stop tape. Um, so I didn't know what was going on with Allison. Was she not awake? Had she not had the appropriate caffeine? Was it me? So off tape, you know, I asked what was up. She told me a few things that were on her mind, and I asked her if she wanted to stop the interview. Which, as much as I dig Allison and her work, I would have been completely okay with. But Allison wanted to talk, so our conversation continued and it shifted into even more surprising territory. Okay, so let's, uh, what were we talking about while we actually filled your, your cream here? We were talking about whether one could read too much and whether there's a limit to this, whether reading can wreck your life. We were talking about, um, you know, how you don't, you feel that you don't have enough time, that you're, you're underread, which is quite a surprise revelation for me. I mean, why, why do you feel like this? I... I seem to have a hard time convincing people that I am as badly read as I am. Uh, nobody believes me. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I have never read John Updike. I've never read Joyce Carol Oates. There are swaths of things I've never even looked at. I don't, you know, I just feel I carry around a great load of guilt about that. But I don't know how to make time to read. Well, I mean, one can, in fact, live a perfectly wonderful life without reading John Updike and Joyce Carol Oates. I, why, why do you feel this guilt at this age right now? I mean, you've had quite a success, I, I think, anyway, at least from, from my peripheral position. So, you know, why should any of this matter? Why should the amount of what you have read matter at this point in the game? Maybe it's just my encroaching mortality and the realization that you know, it used to be possible to think I would read all these things, and increasingly I realize it's not. It's very finite what I'm going to be able to read in my lifetime. What do you, tr I mean, but you trade off something good for this, I would think, in terms of living. Not everybody gets a chance to read everything. I won't be able to read everything. Nobody can. Well, like I said, I think this was off tape. <laughs> <laughs> I have this double shift that I work. Yeah. You know, I write in the day and 
draw on the night. I have two jobs, so that really cuts in on the reading time. Uh, but I don't read with any great program in mind. I just read what will serve my immediate project. Yeah. I guess I feel a little guilty about that. Like, if I were a true scholar, I would read a broad context of things. But I only read the stuff I want to use. Yeah. Well, isn't that a more pragmatic approach to uh, yeah. reading? Pragmatic approach to living? More well, efficient, yes. Yes. So, let's talk about Donna, this photographer you got involved with. She had... <laughs> As you describe, a remarkable ability to capture the precise instant that revealed everything. She takes a picture of you called Allison in Between, where your skin is tinted with retouching ink. And this, along with the blood that we see in the book, the many circles which mimic the uh, plexiglass dome, uh, this gives us the vital clue for why you decided to tint much of this book pink. Um, and... This also uh, sort of suggests the solution for finding an exit or a way for you to elaborate upon uh, your life is, is almost viewing yourself as Allison in between, as, as we're almost talking about Allison in between from a reading standpoint. So what of this? Is this the only way for you to approach the memoir form? Uh, do visual guides help you as much as textual guides? Yeah, that very much, although I hadn't really connected that photo tinting with the color of the book. I thought that was just a happy coincidence that I was using this red color and I, I was able to use it to do the tinting. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love your insights. <laughs> um, but the visuals very much drive my storytelling. Um, I've Whenever I try to just write in a word processing document, I get stuck because I need to have pictures to make the kind of associative leaps that get me through my ideas, that get me through to some kind of conclusion. Um, when I was writing Fun Home, I felt like I had to sort of explain why it was a comic book, like, oh, there was lots of powerful visual images from my childhood. I grew up in this ornate house. It was important to show that, but I don't think that's true. I think I was just trying to accommodate, you know, just trying to make an excuse for why this had to be a comic book, but I don't feel like I need to make that excuse anymore. It's Comics is a, a language that I'm learning to be more fluent in, and it um, helps me to make arguments and arrive at revelations. As you become more fluent in the language of comics, has it become more ambiguous in some way? Has, has the ambiguity of, of the grammar and the language that you have both staked your claim on uh, been of help in sort of exploring the ambiguities of your life or the ambiguities of some life that is presented on the page? I feel like I'm always trying to push the distance between the text and the image, the, the stories that are being described in the scenes and the narration that's running over it. I'm trying to stretch that as far as I can without losing the reader's attention. Yeah. Um, but I love that distance and I think something powerful can happen in that distance. Such as what do you think? Well... Is there a moment in this book where you felt that you hit that particular power? Or? Well, I think of that Dr. Zeus spread, which was a purely visually driven sequence. Um, I'm talking about uh, one of my favorite childhood books, which was Dr. Zeus's sleep book. The plexiglass dome and all that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the plexiglass dome. Um, I would always... In my first, with my first therapist, I would describe my mother as being, as, as having this plexiglass dome. Like at nine o'clock at night, she would disappear in plain sight under this invisible dome where she would smoke and read, and no one could talk to her. She was off duty for the night. And <clears throat> I didn't realize this, but looking through Dr. Zeus's sleep book, the phrase plexiglass dome is right there, and it's, it describes this little creature who lives inside a big dome watching everyone else in the world and 
totting them up on a big chart. Um, and I, it's hard. It's hard for me even to talk about this stuff because I kind of need the visuals, and, and I think visually. Look, I got it right here. <laughs> okay. Um, but when I was looking at this illustration as an adult, it just—it's immediately obvious to me that this dome was in the shape of a a pregnant, pregnant uterus. uterus. It even has a little door on one that, that, that says, keep out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is just a sequence of ideas I never would have gotten at without pictures. Yeah. I'm able to trace its origins in my own childhood drawings, and, and I'm able to project this metaphoric connection with the, the womb and, and my own, like, desire for that kind of primal oneness with my mother that has been forever sundered. But that was visually driven. I I couldn't have come up with that without pictures and visual metaphors. It's, it's interesting to me that the origin point very often of what you read is depicted more than the origin point of, of what you illustrate or even what you write. Um, I think of the infamous drawing that you do on the bathroom floor in this of a doctor examining a girl. We don't actually see this, but what's fascinating is that we actually do see um, a, a page of a memoir fragment that you wrote with your mother's red inkings all over it, except that is kind of occluded by all of these little textual boxes of, of, of Allison in the present day. Yeah, my narration yes. overlaying it. So, so my question is... Um, why didn't you portray that drawing in, in an explicit way? Do you feel that that you were more driven by 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 words as 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 a as as a way to find the the track here? Well, or? sometimes it's more powerful not to show an image. Yeah. In that case, maybe it was a cop out, but I really didn't have the original image. Yes. You know, my that. mother had thrown it out, and I couldn't. You know, I couldn't replicate my child's drawing without seeing the original. But that was just a cop-out. I was very relieved I didn't have it because I wouldn't want to show that. It was just, that chapter was so difficult to write, just revealing that childhood sexual fantasy was excruciating. I was living in a, just a horrible pit of shame for months as I was working on that chapter. Yeah. For all of these chapters, whatever old, dark emotion I was writing about, shame or, or depression or grief all, all of that would kind of take over my life during the period I was writing about it in a very uncomfortable and disconcerting way this shame a source of comfort for you <laughs> or I mean <laughs> I, I, I'm sure not everything here was written in shame I mean to, to my mind like I really like the therapy sessions because you draw yourself as have as just being super excited to to confess uh more so i think than you know we see the allison in in, in the therapy sessions is like yes I'm, I'm going ahead and getting my aggression out and all this so uh, what aggression perhaps i suppose or delight must have fueled this in some way or i mean you can't you can't exclusively draw from a sense of shame to to really no, confront something. no there were there was a, a whole range of different emotions and that and the realization of my aggression was a great breakthrough. Um, something that I think enabled me to push through and finish writing Fun Home, my, my first memoir. Yeah. And that I had to tap into again for this memoir about my mother. I mean, it was a terribly aggressive act. Uh, writing about any real person is a, such a violation of their subjectivity. Yeah. Well, how do you go ahead and honor your mother, either during or after this book? I mean, she did review a good deal of it, at least if I'm going by the book. Here. Yeah, she did. Um, well, you know, I feel lucky to have such a an interesting and smart mother who cares about writing. My mother, maybe, maybe my whole putting putting myself down about how little I've read is. The, something is like a mother issue because yeah. my mother reads voraciously she's read much more than 
I do. She keeps up with all the criticism. She's she reads the London Review of books. Yeah. She's she reads a lot. Yeah. And I can never stack up to that. So I, I guess I have to just keep whining about that in public. But why should it even matter at this point? I mean, that's the thing that fascinates me. I mean, if this book was your own to the lighthouse to sort of free yourself of your mother, well, here we are talking about books, and I'm like, well, Allison, at this point, you have nothing to, to you have nothing to worry about. I would think from a, from a reading standpoint, even right. even considering the mortality thing, which I totally understand, but I, you know. I think you're perfectly erudite as it is. You're certainly erudite than most Americans, I would say. I'll just have to settle for that, I guess. Settle for that? Why? I mean, you know, why, why not just be? We were talking about the true self of this, right? What about the true self of the Allison right here? Maybe it's just that I used to read so much as a child, and I don't read at that same pace. So I feel like I'm not living up to my own image of myself. Is this the same for, for drawing and for art, for illustration and all that? Do you feel that you're holding yourself up to any yardstick, or is it really just in the No, I feel end? pretty good about my drawing output. Yeah. Oh, I actually wanted to ask you about a number of situations in this book where words often are operating on a different track the life that is unfolding that you were depicting. I'm thinking, of course, the ersatz argument with your mother while you're going through Winnicott, <laughs> uh, lying in bed with a book as you have Eloise trying to tell you something that is very vital and you're just there with your book. Uh -huh. um, your mother patching your jeans while you discover <laughs> the Jungian mother archetype. So, you know, Yeah, those are some scenes where I feel like I really am pushing on that distance and asking a lot of the reader to follow my story but also listen to my little essayistic digression and I never quite know if that's going to work um, I hope that it does I, I, I often I'm, I'm, it's sort of a playing to the pit thing I'll try to have a really interesting compelling scene unfolding in the foreground so that the reader has some patience for these less related thoughts yeah is it a way of compartmentalizing yourself to sort of come to grips with certain truths to decide what you're going to put down and what you're not going to put down? Or? No. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, though. I can't think of a counter-argument to that. Well, how, how does someone like Winnicott help you in, in organizing your life? Oh, man. Well, Winnicott, I mean, Winnicott helped me in organizing the book. Yeah. I, I, I knew from the beginning that I was fascinated with him, that I wanted to learn more about his ideas, but I didn't know for quite some time that I would actually use him as a kind of structuring device. Each, each chapter in the book is organized around a different one of his pivotal theories. Yeah. So he organized the book, but he also... I feel like I was trying to vicariously be analyzed by Winnicott. I wanted to like be his patient. And so I did that through reading his work and try and I haven't actually thought about this explicitly. I'm, this is the first time I'm trying this out, yeah, but yeah. I'm creating this like this, this sort of attenuated analysis with Winnicott <clears throat> comparing myself to other case studies that he talks about, the, the famous Piggle case of the little girl he worked with, who was just about my age, and I, I like sort of identify myself with this child, with other uh, people in case studies, like in his mind and the Psyche Soma paper, he talks about a, a middle-aged woman who just never felt like she was really alive or really present in her life and I identify myself with her and I'm through his patience I'm trying to cure myself yeah cure yourself or find points of comparison just to if I have a guide here I want to cure myself cure yourself I'm always trying Is to cure myself ever completely curable are you completely curable no no but I would like to be more cured <laughs> than I am what about this idea of transcribing your mother's conversations. I mean, the thing that's interesting about this on a number of levels is that, well, 
I think to myself, why do these conversations have to be that accurate for the, for the sake of this book? I mean... I Because I'm not really... I mean, I'm starting to just keep putting myself down and making all these excuses, but I'm not really a fiction writer. And yeah. uh, only a fiction writer or a person with that, that particular gift can recreate conversations. I couldn't do it. I feel like I don't have the the muscles in my brain that it takes to capture my mother's voice. And maybe that's just the fact that my mother's voice is so, you know, kind of critiquing me constantly inside of my head. What about Dykes to watch out for? That's fiction in some sense. You were able to recreate, I'm sure, plenty of conversations for that. They're very, and it's very funny. So, so what of what of that? Um, I'm sorry. Say that one more time. Um, well, Dykes to watch out oh, for. Oh, fiction, fiction, fiction. You were able yeah, to um, recreate conversations well, for that. But those characters were all, in one degree or another, just little variants of myself. <clears throat> My mother is a really <clears throat> full-blown character in her own right. She is so funny. Her lines are, it's as if someone is scripting them, and I, I am not that good of a writer. Maybe, maybe this was my apprenticeship. Maybe I will be better. I like to think that I am getting all of this memoir out of my system so that maybe I really could write fiction at one point. And I do sort of delve a little bit into fiction in Are You My Mother when I'm forced to imagine these scenes from Donald Winnicott's life. That was really, really fun and exciting to take that kind of imaginative leap because normally I'm just sticking very close to the facts of my life or the facts of the, the research I'm doing. So you are good here at historical fiction. You are good here at, at the apprentice fiction that you deem. So it seems to me that you're actually like on the road here. Yeah, to... maybe this is just my, my training. Do you think that there's a certain finite sense of yourself that you can explore uh, through these memoirs? And, and maybe you are holding yourself back in some sense before pursuing some extremely vigorous fictional expanse as opposed to a vigorous non-fictional expanse which I think this book definitely is I hold that possibility open but it's not on my immediate horizon I don't feel really drawn yet to fiction and I have I feel like I have at least one more autobiographical project that I need to get out of my system is this the love life thing no you know love life is what are you my mother turned into I, I had a feeling yeah it kind of morphed into that uh, I, I was writing about relationships. Well, I had to come up with a, a book idea pretty quick after Fun Home came out. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't have another great idea. I didn't have this amazing story like the story about my father that, was, that Fun Home was built around. So I just thought, okay, I can think of a couple hundred pages of things to say about relationships. Relationships are really interesting. And then I had these philosophical ideas about the self and the other that I thought would fit in there. And so for a couple of years, I was going along with this very abstract, very turgid exploration of, of Winnicott's ideas and these tortured episodes from my young adulthood and trying to tie them together. And it really wasn't making any sense. Yeah. And then I realized that, oh my God, this book is really about my mother. I've been going to great lengths to avoid the story of my mother. Yeah. And then it kind of changed gears. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you would think, in light of the fact that I, I believe this story to be quite vivid and, and, and quite intertwined with Wolf and Winnicott in very interesting ways, that you would have a finite sense of personal stories with which to mine from. I mean, maybe the author, in this case, is not the best judge of what she can, in fact, offer the world in terms of, like, you know, stories and so forth. I mean, you've managed to, I think, create so many stories over the years that I that the question of of maxing out in some sense. Well, I, yeah. I don't, I don't believe you can max out if you are inventive enough or honest enough. But 
the fact is, this memoir about my mother is a memoir about writing a memoir about my father, which yeah. is really kind of ridiculous. And also, early on, my agent told me, this is absurdly self-reflexive. No one is going to want to read this. But somehow, I, I, after going away from that, I came back to that, and I found a way that I think makes it work. Yeah. But now, what if my next memoir is a memoir about writing a memoir about a memoir? You know, we need to revive meta in some sense, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, why? I mean, because you're, you know, your your stock of material starts to dwindle when all you do is sit around writing about your life. That's true. Um, but on the other hand, there are sometimes ways to approach the same story or to accept the fact that maybe all writers, even the best writers, are probably telling same variants on the same story and I are finding new true. truths yeah. in this. I mean, I'm sure this is the case with you, where you're finding plentiful truths with each I think that's true. I'm only... I'm being disingenuous when I say that I, yeah. you're running out of material because writing is living and God knows I get tons of material from the stuff that I do when I'm writing. The insights that I have and the other sources that I'm reading... That seems perfectly legitimate. What do you do to protect yourself from what I'm getting here, at least in this conversation, is that there's this sort of sense of approval, like, you know, your agent saying that, well, that's too self-reflective, or uh, you're judging yourself against what you have read. I mean, art needs to be defiantly original and devoid of any sort of outside voices saying this is good and this is bad in order to actually be distinct. Your art is very distinct. And so, you know, what do you do to protect yourself from the outside voices like this? Wow. You know, well, for one thing, I have spent a lot of my life refusing to acknowledge that I was an artist. You know, as a young lesbian, as a young, like, leftist, I, I felt like art was corrupt and you know, morally wrong and elitist and all of that stuff. And I had to sort of work through that. When I was doing my comic strip, I thought of myself as a, a journalist. or something. That felt more clean and <clears throat> more populist. But over the course of writing Fun Home, I had to come to terms with the fact that what I, what I was doing was a, an artistic project. And I, and I was... It was sort of coming out as an artist. I feel like this book about my mother is <clears throat> a similar coming out about being a writer. Yeah. Like I've also spent a great deal of energy refusing to admit that I was a writer. Why, why have you been in denial about this, Alison? I think you're a writer. Well, mostly because my mother was the writer. Yeah. I've had to do this intense Oedipal battle with my mother in order to claim that turf for myself. Um... And sometimes I think I've become a cartoonist as a way of being a crypto writer, becoming a writer so that my mother couldn't tell I was doing it. Yeah. Are you now at this point where you fully accept yourself that you are a writer, that you, uh, you don't necessarily have your mother here to look over your shoulder? Or, no, I mean, I'm almost there. Obviously, I still have all these like, insecurity issues about how many books I've read. Yeah. But I'm getting there. I mean, I've had to sort of read... Rethink my role since Fun Home had that strange success, and I've been finding myself more and more in these literary places and situations. Um, I've had to expand my way of thinking about myself. These literary places and situations. Well, like uh, sitting here talking to you. <laughs> this is a literary situation? <laughs> yes. Yes? Huh news to me. <laughs> I thought it was a conversation. Well, but it's a conversation about writing. You, In a context of someone who talks to writers all the time and who reads writers all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you talk to cartoonists a lot, too, but I don't know about a lot. I've heard you talk to some. Um, but, you know, cartooning itself is undergoing this strange transformation, and, you know, it's becoming a legitimate literary form and so I'm just sort of having my own growth pangs yeah do you think it's being needlessly co-opted in some sense that uh, that some people are kind of hitching their 
hitching themselves to the cartoonish wagon without really understanding that this came from a place of, well, we came here because there was no other place for us to, to talk about some of these issues in life. There was well, yeah. no place to document. I mean, we, we came here because basically you gave the, you, you thumbed your noses at us, and now you're coming back to us and saying, well, actually, this is, this is literature. I, I do, of course, have some of those feelings, but I also know that any evolution, whether it's political or aesthetic, the young people coming along don't know that history of oppression, and that's yeah, good. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. what enables them to create stuff that's new. Yeah. They're actually liberated by not being oppressed? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's the same with parents and children, I think. You know, teenagers are notoriously unappreciative of what their parents have given up for them but that's just the way human civilization goes yeah. if young people were crawling around all indebted to us they would never get any anything new done but do you think that on a certain level artists might in fact be oppressed today and i mean this in a very funny way because i would i would argue that uh that there's been a certain mainstreaming of culture that even the online territories it, I, I feel this about online stuff, that online journalism has been co-opted, and I wonder if I'm even part of this, to really stop this greater pursuit of, of serious issues, of, um, of alternative issues, that now it's about the git, or it's about the uh, drawing eyeballs, drawing traffic, and I, and I do my best to just not pay attention to that, just really talk, I mean, I'm talking with you because I really dig your stuff, but on the other hand, I'm wondering if, if there's a certain certain part of, of where art is now that where we're not really sort of confronting the big issues. When Samuel Delaney, someone like him, I'm reading his book right now, and he had to find like the most obscure publisher, Samuel yeah, Delaney, yeah. To, to publish stuff about like you know uh, a very explicit homosexual teenage life, and I and I'm enjoying it, uh, but but. I, the fact that he has to go find a place and he has to be pushed so much to the margins. I mean, you know, where are we at, do you think, right now, in terms of, you know. Well, this brings us back to May Day and my <laughs> my visit to Barnes & Noble yeah, tonight yeah, when yeah. Occupy is calling for a general strike. Yes. And here and I, I am going to the corporate bookstore um, to sell my wares. Also, you're not supposed to buy anything today. Yes, I know. <laughs> Um, we'll tell you what, I'll buy you your coffee and I'll be the hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the biggest hypocrite of all because here I am expecting people to come to this bookstore and buy my book. But they will come, you think? Oh, yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah. I, I, it, it's a complex moral issue, but I, I'm just aware of some of the irony. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this may go back to the question of how literary culture is existing in such a bubble that they're not even paying attention the fact that you're not supposed to buy anything today, that you're not supposed to go to work today and so forth. I mean, this is something that, you know, especially on a mizzling day like this, who wants to go out and protest, right? Um, yes. Uh, but wait, how did this strand of the conversation start? Oh, just the, the whole shift in the culture. Like, yeah, yeah, what, what is, yeah. What is oppressed art these days? That's kind of what we were talking about here. I don't know. Are artists oppressing themselves, perhaps, because <laughs> of, you know, are you oppressing yourself by going to Barnes & Noble? I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I suppose maybe this speaks to how artists are now obligated, in some sense, to a great infrastructure that is promulgated by, like, you know, the big well, six or whatnot. Yeah, you know, speaking of Virginia Woolf, I was just trying to imagine what she would do when faced with a book tour itinerary like yep. the one that stretches ahead of me. I mean, she thought it was obscene to ask writers to go out and speak about their work or appear in public at all. And I acknowledge that this, you know, I oh, also I was reading that in essay by um, Susan Cain, that woman who wrote the book about the value Wyatt, of yes. Wyatt. I talked with her too. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I got to hear that. Is that up yet? Yeah, it is. Oh, it was God. Uh, it was like a couple months ago. Oh. And and I I mean I thought she had some interesting points, but I had some problems with some of her studies. But I do think that you know talking about the problem of introversion is really necessary these days, and may in fact relate to what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean I find 
this stuff excruciating to a certain degree. I would so much rather be home in my basement. Yeah. I mean, talking with you is lovely. The I hope read so. <laughs> the readings <laughs> the readings themselves are lovely, but I've had some interviews with like really obnoxious journalists who just are pushing for personal information about my life and it feels awful. It feels like I'm prostituting myself. I don't know how to deflect some of that stuff. You've deflected it quite ably with the chart that's at the beginning of the book where you refer to certain names as letters. Yeah, the guy, the guy who I'm talking about went into that chart and tried to get me to talk about... What? Yeah. Even though you've explicitly put up the proviso. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so that kind of stuff sucks the life out of me and... But I acknowledge that this is what I have to do. To be a writer in this day and age, you you have to go out and... What's that word? Flog yourself? <laughs> well, we were using sexual right. metaphors earlier, right? <laughs> <laughs> May as well go all the way with the verbs. Um, no, I'm fascinated by the idea that someone... I mean, anybody reading this book, I think, is going to pick up that... You're really putting yourself up front here, especially when you're talking about, oh, I, I was attracted to other women uh, with this one partner, right? And you're really showing yourself, I think, with this book in a far more vulnerable and revealing light that I think you, you strike, in my, from my standpoint, a fair balance between what you're comfortable revealing and what is off limits. And you would think that, based off of that, that more people would be sensitive to most to, people to have yeah. been yeah. most people really have been and I'm I'm really appreciative of that but this one guy went over the line it was very annoying um, but I it's interesting too how people can be extremely confessional in yeah. memoir but not reveal very much did you happen to read um, Chester Brown's book paying for it about his I haven't read that one but I am familiar with Chester Brown yes well, he wrote this really fascinating, very detailed memoir about his decision to, like, give up on romantic love. It's yeah. nothing but heartache and headache and just have sex with prostitutes yeah. and have friends. And never the twain shall meet. Yeah. Um, and while it was extremely, uh, almost clinically revealing of his sexual life... At the same time, I didn't feel like I really got to know him. Yeah. It was, there was something very opaque about it. That reminds me of this, um, I listened to this Mark Maron interview with this comedian, and I don't know, I just happened to be up at four in the morning or something, and then someone had said, you should check this out. And this comedian was going on about, and I believe his name was Graham, but he was going on about, um, you know, how he committed, how he tried to commit suicide, and like how he was actually really honest and open. But what he could not see when he was talking, and what was plainly to any outside listener, was that this guy was an absolute train wreck. He was making oh, bad decisions, bad decision. He was a brilliant guy who was drawn to just complete self-sabotage, to pushing people away. And this is one of the fascinating things about what it is to reveal in today's age, where. We're supposed to go ahead and tell everybody on Facebook exactly, well, you're going to get everything from me. But sometimes in that act of telling all, we say nothing at all about ourselves. Or when we think we are saying everything about ourselves, we are, uh, in fact, saying more. So, you know, does it render this point moot to some degree, do you think? It's interesting. I'm actually uh, co-teaching a class on autobiography and comics right now. and. We had a conversation the other day. We were talking about Roland Barth, his, oh, yes. his autobiography, Roland Barth by Roland Barth, and the and the class discussion turned into a very interesting look at Facebook as autobiography and what it did and didn't reveal. Yeah. Um, I I can't I can't talk about Facebook at this hour of the day. My brain would melt down. <laughs> yeah. Well. How does memoir subsist in this culture of telling telling it all, of foursquaring where you're at? Um, yeah, I, I will never fucking use foursquare in my life. I mean, I don't want people to know. I, I don't know. think people have the right to really know 
where we are at any given moment. Yet I people know. are so happy to go ahead and give up this information, allow corporations to collect profiles based off of this, and I'm deeply uncomfortable with the blind manner in which most people do this. How, how can memoir, where does memoir have a place? Is it really a matter of those narrative nuances that you work out over many years? Well, yeah, I mean, where does, you, yeah. contemplation has to figure into it. Yeah. I don't think many Facebook posts are come, arise from deep contemplative thought. You know, those are things people are doing between 27 other websites and activities that they're doing. Yeah. But when, when I was working on this book about my mother, I, it took me a long time to settle down into a contemplative state just because there is so much distraction. Even in my woods in Vermont, I'm on the fucking internet constantly. But finally, I, I read that, that book by that guy who said... We've lost our ability for contemplative thought. You have to shut off your computers. And I did that for a while, and it was really helpful. The, the Nicholas Carr book? Or? Yes. Yeah. Huh. Um, How, and, and what made you go back to the great internet crack house? <laughs> <laughs> well, in some weird way, I've evolved as a writer. Like, Google is part of my my toolbox. I mean... So many of the ideas and associations I get to in this book are the result of Google searches and just the contingency and happenstance that that occurs when you're pursuing some line of inquiry in Google. Yes. Um, that can be very debilitating, of course, because it never ends and it's just constantly branching out. But I definitely got to some places through Google that I would not have otherwise. This is the, I suppose, the problem that's depicted in the book of uh, sometimes looking for something very simple will lead you down all sorts of rabbit holes. <laughs> that, you know, the quest for a reference shot or the quest for, you know, finding, the quest for finding a specific fact will lead you into some perhaps personal confrontation that's totally unexpected? Or? Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, well, I don't have an example exactly of that, but I have all all my diaries and date books that I was constantly pouring over to find out what I was doing at this particular point in my life. And it, at one critical juncture in my own biography, I, I noted that I went to see a movie called Hope and Glory. Hope and Glory, yes. I totally didn't remember what that movie was about. I had no notes in my diary at the time about the content of the movie. So now, when I was writing the book, I went and researched the movie, and it turned out to be very much about a theme that I address in the book, which is about children being evacuated from London during the yeah. Blitz. Um, also reflected in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. And, and yeah. fascinating to me that it would be World War II, of all things, and the London evacuation that would be the trigger point for you to have these really deeply emotional reactions. Why do you think that is? You know, I don't know, except that it's some inherited um, genetic postponed reaction from my mother's own childhood yeah. during that, you know, that na national global trauma. Like, that's how war lives through all of us. Like, I know I've had my own wars in my own lifetime, but somehow I seem to be still working out my mother's experience of World War II. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you almost need something that is so big that it's going to completely give you permission to have an emotional reaction. That's what it seems, that's what it seems like yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of problematic because, of course, I'm not writing about, you know, I didn't live through any of those terribly, terribly traumatic events. So who am I to be sitting around whining in therapy about, yeah. you know, my first world problems? But and there, there you go. You get more guilt atop guilt atop guilt. Yeah. God, I gotta go to confession. Yeah. I want to also ask about your mother's artistic life, which you explore in this book. Uh, not only was she an actor who, as you say, palled around with Dom DeLuise, um, but she also wrote poems, uh, including one in Germany in, called La Belle Dame, which was, of course, a riff off of the Keats ballad. And uh, how are you doing on time? 
Uh, I should really go. Let's do this one more question, but I have to like get. I have to do some things before I meet my driver. Oh, I see. I see. Um, okay. Well, anyway, to go back to your mother's artistic Sorry. life, um, you know, you also have. So, so she writes this Keats pastiche, and basically, it is. Um, it's basically almost a mirror-like image. It tells the tale from the woman's perspective as opposed to the man who is going out, lusting after her. Um, you also point to this f- photograph of you not being allowed backstage as a kid. So um, this leads me to, you know, quote from the first Winnicott paper you ever read. The precursor of the mirror is the mother's face. Now, can you entirely trust the mirror's reflection, whether it be your mother's face, whether it be this finished book, which is, I suppose, in some sense, the ultimate mirror. I mean, do you think that your mother's Keats pastiche is a true mirror image from which you or the reader can find some understanding? I suppose this is a way for me to demonstrate or to refute your denial earlier about, like, well, I'm doing meta, top, meta, top, meta. Well, as we see here, there's all sorts of levels here that cause for this reflection. So what of this? Well, I do believe that the book is my attempt at creating a self-reflection. But a mirror is problematic, you know. As Lacan says, the mirror is not us. You know, the reflection in the mirror is opposite from you. It's, 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 it's an image. The mirror is an image. It's not ourselves. We can never see ourselves. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Uh, do you think you see yourself completely in this book? No, I'm sure there are many dark alleyways I avoided. Um, Is there a good enough Allison that's presented here <laughs> for the reader? I think there's a good enough Allison, yes. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's a good place to end. I think so. <laughs> Let's try to find an accent. Well, Allison, pleasure as always. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank out. you, Edward. Okay. Uh,